0: Good morning, everyone. Isn't it good that we're back? Like, it still seems like it's kind of out there. There's like this kind of standoffishness still in our culture. But when we come here, we can hug each other. We can love each other. Um, It's more than a handshake. And and we're going to deal with touch a little bit, how important touch is. But how many of you are glad that we can just... Give each other those hugs now. Um, If you would, if you do not have a Bible with you, put your hand up. We'll get one to you um, for you to flip quickly to verses and things um but yeah we want to get one to you if you don't have one please put your hand up we'll get one to you and if you do not have one at home or one handy at work or wherever that we want you to have the word of god in your hands in your homes in your hearts um i have i have a bible i keep in my truck i i have like 80 of them in my office (laughs) but um and i have them at home and you know we want everybody to have, there's there's no reason, we, we have a printing press, we want everybody to have the word and, and have it accessible to them so that they can always be growing and knowing God more. John Wycliffe said that all Christian life is to be measured by scripture, by every word thereof. And so... Uh, please make sure that you have a Bible. Uh, Luke 8 is where we'll be at today. It's in the New Testament. We've been in Luke for a while. We'll continue to be in Luke for a while. Um, But uh, we're in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 8. And So if you would, turn with me there, and we'll start in verse 40. It says, Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, "Who was it that touched me?" When all denied it, Peter said, "Master, the crowd surround you and are pressing in on you." But Jesus said, "Someone touched me, for I perceive that the power that power has gone out from me." And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him and declared in the presence of all the people that she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said, to her daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Well, while she was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, your daughter's dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus on hearing this answered him, do not fear, only believe and she will be well. We came to the house. He allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, "Do not weep, for he is, she is not dead, but sleeping." They laughed at him, knowing that she was dead, but taking her by the hand, called, saying, "Child, arise." and her spirit returned and she got up at once and he directed that someone that something should be given her to eat and her parents were amazed but he charged them to tell no one what happened god of all authority power and compassion we submit ourselves to you this morning and we plead with you to meet us in our suffering and in our shame as we humbly come before you acknowledging our sin and weakness thank you O Lord for this day that we give to worship to honor you among one another among each other on the hill and with your bride around the world God be present with us this morning as we examine what is kind of an easily confused text from the scriptures in our hopeless state. May your truth inhabit our lives and give us, give us strength and power from the Holy Spirit as you speak to us through your word. God, we pray that you would give us understanding and a, and a willingness to fulfill the mission that you've called us to on this earth until you come. We give this time over to you to open our hearts to hear your voice in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen suffering is an inescapable part of the human condition isn't it watching the news this week on top of what's taking place in ukraine and uh... the rest of the world and the perpetual problems that we have along our own border with mexico that involves uh... just heartbreaking human trafficking and the the, the crisis with the number of unaccompanied minors coming through with nobody and and those that are separated from their families in some way and i noticed that a that this week there was a whole family that had been kidnapped and uh, they were found dead right here in California. And and a daycare center in Thailand was shot up killing over 30 children. In my role as a pastor, I speak with a lot of people uh, that suffer from a lot of pain, suffering from physical and sexual abuse, the tearing apart of families and abandonment and other things, things that you just don't get over very easily suffering is part of our human experience some of us suffer more than others most of us have not been persecuted or uh, are in fear of being martyred anytime soon but when we lose the person we love most it doesn't hurt any less we all suffer in part for me it was being picked on and bullied as an undersized learning disabled carrot top weird little kid Uh, watching my family and my safe Fullerton cul-de-sac home being dismantled and destroyed at the same time, and then being told that I couldn't play Pop Warner football because I was too little, and that's really all I cared to do. Failing at school and college and, and my first jobs as a teenager, and failing over and over at ministries that I thought God had called me to and then having to say goodbye to my precious daughter Caroline before I could ever kiss her face. Many of you have suffered far more than I have. But for the believer, those who have repented of our sins and placed our trust in Jesus, he calls us his elect. And he is present in our suffering. And he has authority in our suffering. When it starts, how intense it is. When it ends, how it ends. Well, this morning, we're going to look at people who are suffering. And in this case, Jesus chose to end their suffering through healing. But this is more about the miracle of Christ's compassion than it is about the physical healing that took place. And it's about approaching our Lord with reverence, which is appropriate given his supreme authority. So starting here in verse 40, it says, Now Jesus returned When Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him for they were waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house for he had an only daughter about 12 years of age and she was dying. Now, before we get to Jairus, you remember that Jesus had crossed the Sea of Galilee, uh, and, and they, his, he and his disciples were in a storm. He's taking a nap in the back of the boat. They wake him up, terrified. He calms the storm. They end up on the eastern shore of Galilee, and there's this naked guy running around living among the tombs, and he was like that because he was demon-possessed, and so Jesus casts a legion of demons out of him, and, he, and the, the, the demons enter a bunch of pigs who run off the cliff and drown Right You remember this now, now, and then, and then the people of the region asked Jesus to leave, so he hops in the boat and he heads back west uh, to the to the west side of the lake now, at its widest part, the Sea of Galilee is about eight miles wide and maybe about thirteen miles from north to south. It's not a huge lake. Compare that to Lake Michigan, for example, which many of us have flown over if we 've if we've ever flown to the northeast, right Lake Michigan is about. 307 miles by 118 miles. Quite a bit bigger. If you've ever been out to the Salton Sea, which is, I don't know, somewhere over there, um, in the desert, I have no idea where I'm pointing, um, but it's it's much larger than the Sea of Galilee. It's about 15 miles by 35 miles. And then, a lot of us here, we've gone fishing in Diamond Valley Lake, right? I remember when it wasn't a lake and I flew a helicopter through the valley where there's now water, right? Um, and and that lake is about four and a half by two miles, so a bit smaller than the Sea of Galilee, even though it's one of the larger reservoirs out there. But the Sea of Galilee is not a notably large lake, but it is significantly or it's significant rather enough, to harbor some sudden catastrophic storms, primarily because of its relationship to the Mediterranean Sea less than 30 miles to the west. Now, eight miles across the lake is a bit of a commute when you have a big boat with a crude sail. And so they, they get back to the other side, uh, there's a crowd waiting. And what's going to take place in this narrative is this double miracle account that's very similar to the account that Mark gives in his gospel in chapter 5. Now remember that Luke makes use of a number of eyewitnesses and presumably uh, things that had been written down. So Mark's gospel is probably uh, a very important source for Luke, at least in this spot and some others. The facts are important here, but the message is paramount to get to that we need to live in the text so i want us all to head over to the western shores of galilee for the morning so i want you to do, close your eyes for a minute i want you to just try to envision where we're at let's just try to live in the text for a minute uh, there's a there's a cool breeze that the climates kind of like uh... southern california it's kind of a dry temperate climate um, and so this breeze, this kind of dry breeze may be coming off the lake. A uh, large, uh, well-built, open boat with like a crude sail kind of pulls up. And the, and then there's some dirty fishermen-looking types and they kind of crawl out of the boat. And Jesus crawls out, this Jesus guy. Um, and he clearly he's their leader. And, and uh, clearly you can see the respect that they have for him. You're watching them... Give him some sort of reverence. You've heard the stories about him, some of the stories we read about in the Gospels. And there he is. So do you see him? Envision Jesus there. The crowd begins to kind of swarm in on him. Lots of people there. He really doesn't look that much different than anyone else. But but you can see there's something special about him. Do you see that special thing about him? He's one of those people that you just know by his presence. You know he deserves respect. Do you get that? Are you are you there? All right, you can open your eyes for a minute or for now. Um, we get the we get the context here, right? I want you give I want to give you a little more context here. In the midst of all this, where we've entered, there's a dad, and those of you that are dads of daughters, there's many of you here who are, you're probably going to relate most to Jairus, and so so Jairus, he's a leader in the synagogue, he's got this kind of pastoral role. So you dads with daughters, imagine this. Because like the dads in this room, Jairus' most important title, like like me, his most important title is daddy. It's the thing he loves hearing most. And like me, Gyrus probably couldn't get enough time with his baby girl. I wonder if he treasured his daddy-daughter dates like I do. Oh, I love taking my little girls out. Oh, they're, well, some of them aren't so little anymore. They keep getting older and older. You all know three of my four daughters, and I love taking them out one-on-one. I just love it. Uh, Lene, um, she's my oldest, she's spunky and she's sarcastic and I'm telling you she has one of the most beautiful smiles you will ever see. Oh I love, I love my one-on-one time with her. She's got this strong confident personality and, and, and she's, she's just a, she's a wonderful date. She likes funny movies, she likes trying new foods, Kind of likes making fun of people a little bit. You know, she, she makes me laugh, she's really funny. And then we have Ashley. Oh, you know how delicate and gentle Ashley is. Just, just this empathy, empathy and compassion just flows out of her for everything. She loves animals and puppies and all kinds of stuff. She's got this, this really special relationship with her grandpa oh she just loves him so much and oh her hugs you can feel you can feel that love just radiate through you when she hugs you they're magical there's there's this love that she can make you feel that's just so real and and she is all princess anything frilly and girly is what she's about uh taking taking her out just ashley and daddy is just an awesome special day she she used to come down into my office when I was there, she'd come down a little tutu and start twirling around. You know that Elton, Don, Elton John song, Tiny Dancer? It reminds me of my Ashley. Oh. And then a little over a week ago, Anna's turn came up. Uh, um, oh, You can see it, right? You see that face? She's got this like smug little hard to get personality and oh her 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 little sarcasm is growing here but but she's also this got this like delicate sweetness oh the other night she just crawled on me and laid her head, head on my chest and just fell asleep oh so so awesome oh and but it this the, our little daddy daughter date each time we got in the truck to go somewhere else she would say in her tiny little speed talker voice she talks super super fast and she she, like this little voice, she go. we going to the daddy-daughter date? Right? And she, and she says daughter like she's from Brooklyn. I don't know where she got that, but... She has like a Brooklyn accent or something, I, I don't know. And then once she had her, we went to Coldstone and she had her ice cream, and then she kind of understood that the whole afternoon had been her daddy-daughter date. And so this past week, um, I every, every morning I'd leave for work and she'd grab onto my leg before I walk out the door, Daddy, where are you going? Well, I got to go to work, princess. I work every day. And she goes, oh, and then we go to another daddy-daughter date? <laughs> Just, oh. The thing is, I can only take three of my daughters out. And I would give anything for a daddy daughter date with Caroline. Just to kiss her on the forehead and tell her that daddy loves her. I would do anything to protect my girls. You dads that have daughters, you know what I'm talking about. There's no limit to what I could do to protect my daughters from any harm or pain. There was nothing I could do to protect Caroline. She had trisomy 18, which is an extra chromosome, kind of like Down syndrome, but it's more deadly. And there was nothing I could do. There was nothing I could do to take that from her. There was nothing I could do to spare her life. You've seen those little questions on social media. There's a picture of a park bench, and the question is, if you could spend 10 minutes with any person in the world, who would that be? And for me it would be Caroline. This is the crossroads that that Jairus is at. He he could no longer protect his baby girl. He was desperate. She was going to die. And Jairus would give anything to take his baby girl to get a big bowl of jambalaya or sit hand in hand with her as they shared a giant tub of popcorn in front of a funny movie and look into her eyes as she... Enjoyed a ridiculous ice cream gummy bear concoction or haggis or whatever they had back then, right? Like, and, and, and Instead, she was slipping away along with Jairus' broken heart. I try to remember and to remind myself that Jesus is not my last resort. He's my first. But even when I'm foolishly relying on my own resources, and he does end up being my last resort. You know what? He's a really good last resort, isn't he? This man was desperate. Some of you know the pain of going from doctor to doctor to doctor, each leaving you with less hope than the last. This is doubly true when your child is at stake. I remember begging, uh, bargaining with the doctors. That, that test is not infallible, right? It, it can be wrong. Those images, they don't look clear to me. Maybe your machine's broken. Maybe she's turned the wrong way. You're wrong. There's a heartbeat. I know it. Try again. Well, Jairus' daughter, she was, she was 12 years old. Up to 11 years old, uh, and one day, uh, the rabbinic tradition would have considered her to be a child. And then after that, from 11 to 12, she would be a minor. And then after 12, they considered her a virgin, which at that point, she was ready to move into womanhood and become uh, a wife and bear children. But to Jairus, this was his baby girl. His only daughter. You know, even when my daughters are in their 40s and they have families of their own, they will still be daddy's little princesses. Do you feel Chirus's heart? Do you feel that? Do you feel his desperation as he reverently falls at the feet of Jesus, the only hope he has left and begs him to come to his home where his pretty princess is dying? Imagine how he felt as Jesus is stalled by this other woman. Wait, you can come back to her. Luke 8, back to verse 42. We'll start in the middle of the verse there. It says, as Jesus went, the people pressed around him, and there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment and immediately her discharge of blood ceased and Jesus said, Who is it that touched me? And when all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said, to his, he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. This woman had some sort of a hemorrhage. It was presumably menstrual in nature, so she would have been considered ritually unclean according to Levitical law. You can read that in Leviticus chapter 15. Let's actually read it together, Leviticus 15, 19 to 27. When a woman has a discharge, and the discharge in her body is blood, she shall be in her menstrual impurity for seven days, and whoever touches her shall be unclean until evening. And everything on which she lies during her menstrual impurity shall be unclean. Everything also on which she sits shall be unclean. And whoever touches her bed shall wash his clothes and bathe himself with water and be unclean until evening. And whoever touches anything on which she sits shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until evening. Whether it is the bed or anything on which she sits, when he touches it, he shall be unclean until evening. And if any man lies with her, and her menstrual impurity comes upon him, uh, he shall be unclean seven days. And every bed on which he, he lies shall be unclean. If a woman has a discharge of blood for many days, not at the time of her menstrual impurity, or if she has a discharge of blood be on the time of her impurity, all the days of her discharge she shall continue in uncleanness as in the days of her impurity. She shall be unclean. Every bed on which she lies, all the days of her discharge, shall be to her as the bed of her impurity. And everything on which she sits shall be unclean, as in the uncleanness of her menstrual impurity. And whoever touches these things shall be unclean, and shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. This woman could not be intimate with her husband if she had one. And if she didn't, She wouldn't be able to get married because nobody would want her. Therefore, she couldn't bear children even if her issue hadn't rendered her infertile. Jairus' daughter comes from some level of wealth and the woman with the issue of blood would have been poor. Jairus' daughter would have been well-loved and accepted while the woman who touched Jesus would have been excluded. Jairus' daughter and this woman... Uh, Jairus' daughter had family and this woman was alone. But when they, what they did have in common was that each of them was beyond human help. They were both equally in desperate need of God's intervention. There was in that culture a bit of superstition that you could touch the hem or tassel of something that a sacred person would wear. And that, that there would be supernatural power that would be transferred from that into you from that garment. Uh, and we're, we'll note here that Jesus dismisses that superstition when he points to the, to the woman's faith instead of her garment. The tassels the Israelites would wore on their four four corners of their garments. But more generally, the term used here probably just means the edge hem of the garment. Whatever part of the garment she touched, the result was that the hemorrhaging immediately stopped. Just like the wind and the waves. See his authority and his power. Luke 8.24 says, And when they went and woke him, master, master... We are perishing. He awoke and rebuked the wind and raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. So at this moment, Jesus asks who touched him. Uh, what, what, here's the question. Was it a legitimate or a rhetorical question? Or do we know, right? Did he know the answer to the question? Was Jesus oblivious to the identity of the woman in his humanity, or is there another reason that he asks this question? One thing we need to recognize is that while Jesus never ceased to be fully God, he did subject, subject himself to the human condition. Look at this in Hebrews 4, verse 15. It says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. In order to do that, he had to accept human limitations and rely upon the father and the holy spirit to express divine power in some way we don't know exactly how it works but philippians 2 5 through 8 it says have this mind among yourselves which is yours in christ jesus who though he was in the form of god did not count equality with god something to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he even humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And if you jump to verse 17, it says, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a more merciful and faithful high priest in the service of god to make propitiation for the sins of the people for because he himself has suffered when tempted he is able to help those who are being tempted i think that he was sent i think jesus was sensitive to the spirits moving within him and because the physical and spiritual worlds intersect more closely than we often acknowledge. I think Jesus felt the power of God working through him, but probably didn't know exactly what had happened because of the human limitations that he willingly subjected himself to. I could be wrong there. Could be the other way, but it doesn't matter. Here's why. He had a message for that person whether he knew who it was or not. There was a message to be said. Look at Peter's confusion here. What are you talking about, Jesus? Like, this is like standing in line at Disneyland or the DMV. We're being pushed around like people like it's their own personal mosh pit, right? Like, what do you mean who touched me? Like everybody? Right? But in in this case, though, the touch was intentional. It wasn't pushing or shoving like everyone else. It wasn't even a physical touch that he felt. But the physical effects of divine power moving through his body as this woman exercised faith when she touched his garment. Jesus knows what John Noland explained like this, this is what he says, she needs to see that it is contact with Jesus himself that she needs and not simply anonymous access to his power. Power and religion without personal relationship and public commitment is little better than superstition or magic. See, the issue of touch is significant. In chapter 5, Jesus touched the leper who consequently was made clean. But in doing so, Jesus touched something unclean. And you know, many of us often feel unclean and unworthy, don't we? Uh, we feel defiled by our own sins or by something that's happened to us in the past. What unclean thing in your life is it that you feel keeps you from intimacy with God? Jesus touched the briar or coffin of, this, of the widow's son in chapter 7. You recall that? Touching a dead person would render someone ceremonially unclean. We're, we'll see shortly that he touches Jairus' dead daughter But here, the woman who should not even have been in the crowd because she was unclean due to her issue of blood, she's in the crowd and touches Jesus. And notice that he asks who touched him, and we might get a sense that he's about to scold her, but it doesn't go that way, does it? Was this woman like stealing his healing power from him? Well, no, it's not like he was charging. He didn't ask Jairus for a major credit card and two forms of ID. but, But we also see here that the healing cost him something. He felt it. Just like forgiveness cost Jesus something. Just like it cost Jesus something to forgive me. And so she comes to him trembling. And there's this reverent fear, I think, that often we don't get that we should when it comes to Jesus. This is what he says, though. He says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. It's interesting that he calls her daughter. Now, we've all heard this, right? Talking about everybody in the world. Oh, we're all God's children you know that's not entirely accurate right like it's hard for a lot of people to hear this but those who reject jesus are not god's children the, for example look at what he said to the pharisees in john 8 43 john 8 43 why do you not understand what i say it's because you cannot bear to hear my word you are of your father the devil And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Do you see that? Not believing in Jesus makes one not a child of God. In Matthew, Jesus tells a parable about a man who sows wheat, but then at night someone else else comes behind him and sows weeds in the same field. Here's how he explains it in Matthew 13. Matthew 13, verse 38, it says, The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. R.C. Sproul explained it like this. We are not by nature sons and daughters of God. God is not the father of us all. In biblical terms, God is the unique or sole father of his only begotten son, and all the rest of his children are adopted. There's no other way to get into the family of God except through adoption. Romans 8 puts it this way. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption, of, of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father, spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God and if children then heirs heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ provided that we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified in him and I in that passage appeals to what I think is my favorite New Testament word you've heard me say it we Hoiothesia. it It means to place in the condition of a son. It's the word we translate adoption. And the reason that the word son is important is because it's not talking about gender. It's talking about status. The son was the preeminent heir in that culture. What that means is that we get to share in the inheritance of the only begotten of the father, which is all of creation. We are the preeminent heir. also interesting to note that being a son of God is connected with suffering James 1 2 and 3 says count it all joy my brothers when you meet trials of various kinds for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness we're going to get back to that but this idea that oh all the people in the world are just God's children that's not the Bible that's Oprah okay um, take your pick So, so what's significant about calling this woman daughter right Jesus is indicating that her faith is not had not only resulted in her physical healing but also into a family relationship with God and with that we then transition back to Jairus who had also fallen at Jesus feet before the woman touched Jesus can you imagine what he's feeling? Please hurry, Jesus! My baby girl is dying. Verse forty nine. While there was while he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter's dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, hearing this, answered, Do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. And when he came into the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James, the father of the mother, and the father of the mother and of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her, but he said, Do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned. She got up at once, and he directed that something should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what what had happened. Now this event sits in the shadows of John 11 you remember that event where Jesus weeps over the death of his friend Lazarus and then calls him to come out of the grave after being dead for four days now there's no mistaking Lazarus uh, the body's livid it's beginning to smell he's dead and, and, and in that case his friends and family are upset because Jesus hadn't come sooner look at this in John 11:32. 32 now when mary came to where jesus was and saw him she fell at his feet saying to him lord if you had been here my brother would not have died you know death is a pretty final thing right and and that's how they were thinking this is the end this is the final piece and that wasn't an unreasonable thing for them to think and also if we compare it to the healing of the centurion servant what these people didn't realize is that Jesus didn't even have to physically be present in order to work miracles. It wasn't too late for Lazarus, it wasn't too late for this girl, and it's not too late for you, no matter how unclean or how unworthy you might feel. You see, just like we saw with the woman who had the issue of blood, Jesus meets us where the spiritual and physical worlds collide and purifies us of both. We have an, this impulse to be critical of people from Jairus' house because we know the end of the story. Oh, they're laughing at him. Oh, come on. We're like, we're any better, right? Remember, the people are falling around this. People are falling at the feet of Jesus here. Something about Jesus indicated to all these people that he was worthy of that kind of respect. And so it may have been out of reverence that they told Jairus not to bother Jesus any longer. It may have been respect. Remember, the centurion didn't even feel worthy to have Jesus come into his house, and Jesus healed his servant from a distance. But Jesus here takes the fear out of reverence. Like my kids. Like You guys all know this. If you've had kids, you know that priceless look on your kid's face when you walk in on them doing something they shouldn't be doing, right? <laughs> like, how'd that get there, right? Have you ever heard that one? right? But here's the thing. Is it really like, serious fear or is it reverence? Like, they, they know that I love them and they know that their consequences are going to be informed by that love and and they don't see me as an unjust tyrant. Well, Ashley one time, when she's like three stomped up the stairs and called me a dinosaur. Um, I... It's like the worst thing she's ever called me. I think she still feels bad for it. She's so sweet. But uh, I... It had to be like 20 years ago that I took a class in the book of Genesis and Justin Alfred was the qu- professor. You think he's loud now? Try 20 years ago. You know Justin, right? Remember him speaking here, right? Uh, and I'll never forget that he asked the whole class and we all just kind of looked with our jaws kind of like, huh, eh? right? He asks, what's the opposite of faith? And his answer is the opposite of faith is fear. See, this is a contrast that Jesus is making here. My kids often don't understand me. In fact, the younger that they are, the less I make sense to them. And in her book, The Hiding Place, Corrie ten Boom recalls being on a train as a very young girl with her father who's a watchmaker. Uh, His name's Casper, and and he asks her, or she asks him about sex while they're on the train. and. As as they're getting up to get off the train, Casper sets his traveling case on the floor and he asks Corey to pick it up and carry it off the train. She says, oh, it's too heavy. And here's how Casper brilliantly answered. Yes, and it would be a pretty poor father who would ask his little girl to carry such a load. It's the same way, Corey, with knowledge. Some knowledge is too heavy for children when you're older and stronger, you can bear it. But for now, you must trust me to carry it for you. He's kind of my hero. <laughs> I don't. Know. Uh, I wish I had words like that to t- tell my kids. Like, it's kind of like, don't fear, only believe. Hmm. Jesus comes down to the house. It's just him and his disciples and this this girl's parents. And outside. The people are weeping and moaning and people believe nothing more could be done for the girl. Imagine Jairus. Imagine him walking in to see the lifeless body of his princess. What would he give to sit down just one, for one more bowl of ice cream with her? What would he give to be able to fulfill his role as a father and protect his baby girl from what's happened to her? Jesus says not to weep. She's dead. She's not dead, but sleeping. Now, there's a few possibilities here, but Jesus being a liar is off the table. Uh, Also, the people were not so stupid that they didn't know when somebody was dead. So the chances that she was not actually dead was pretty slim. So, what's going on here? Now, he may have been using kind of a euphemistic device to communicate that it's not too late. Just something easy like that. But it could actually also point to something about the connection of the body and the soul and life and death and maybe a little bit of a difference in our understanding of death and God's understanding of death. When he said that, they laughed at him. But notice that he doesn't laugh. Or, I mean, rather, he doesn't respond to their laughter. This is, this is what he says in Mark. Mark chapter 5, verses 41 to 42. It says, Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talithakumi, which means that a girl I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking. She was twelve years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. But here in Luke it says it this way: it puts it in verse fifty-four. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, "Child, arise." And her spirit returned. And she got up at once, and he directed that something should be given her to eat. It says her spirit returned. That word spirit uh, is the word pneuma. And the word pneuma means wind, or air in motion, or breath, or it could mean a spiritual being as well. So it could simply mean that she just started breathing again. Her breath came back. But it also can mean that her spirit returned from being separate from her body. We don't know that. One way or the other, there's something we don't know about how all of that works. Nevertheless, Jesus tells the little girl to do something she's incapable of doing. This account points to salvation, which is illustrated as being brought from death to life. You see, you can't convince a dead person to be alive. You can try all you want. They'll never be convinced. I couldn't convince Caroline to live. Jairus couldn't convince his baby girl to live. We cannot convince anyone to repent and trust Jesus apart from God's work in their life. And so that's what we need to be praying for. Only Jesus can overcome their death and give them life. We talk a lot about free will, and it's it's not a term that we see specifically found in the Bible, but we do know that we have a lot of freedom to make a lot of choices. But a dead person cannot choose to live. God must intervene. And how all that works, there's a lot of discussion on that. But the one thing that we know is that God must intervene. And we see that Jesus intervenes here and restores this girl back to life. We don't know what's taking place in the spiritual world. I think we often want those answers, and so we tend to latch on and believe things that aren't necessarily reliable, and we kind of hang on to them as kind of our sort of hope. Like we hear a lot of stories about people dying on the operating table and then coming back and they saw a light and all this kind of stuff. It's interesting that, that, that they were all in heaven, right? Do you ever find that interesting? Like nobody says, yeah, there was wailing and gnashing of teeth, yeah. right? There was one boy uh, that the book, The Boy Who Came Back from Heaven, was written about. He later said that none of it happened. Uh, his dad kind of had pressured him into saying the things he said. Um, and he doesn't remember anything from the time of the accident to when he woke up from his coma. Here's what he said. He said, I did not die. I did not go to heaven. When I made the claims, I had never read the Bible. People have profited from lies and can." Continue to. They should read the Bible, which is enough. Listen to that last statement. They should read the Bible, which is enough. Woo. Right? You see, we don't need these stories to believe that heaven is for real or that Jesus is God. We have God's word to tell us that. Right? Do not fear, only believe. That is, that is enough. Right? What's going on spiritually with this girl really doesn't matter to the text. What matters is that Jesus intervened. What matters is that Jesus was present in the suffering of these people. He he was present in the suffering of Jairus. Not not that we could get a better visual of what God's already promised us is going to be wonderful in the future. He promised it, it's for real. We can trust him. I think the most critical thing for us to understand from this text is how Jesus stepped into the hopeless suffering of these people and met it with compassion. Jesus doesn't always heal when we want him to because our our suffering is not meaningless. Sometimes that suffering must only be healed the moment we take our last breath and are present with our Lord in eternity So I want to wrap all of this up by looking at the benefits of suffering and then reminding us of the hope that these people in our text had in Jesus, whether they knew it or not. First, our suffering benefits us. Our suffering benefits the church. Our suffering benefits the unbeliever. And our suffering benefits God. Let me tell you how. Our suffering benefits us because God is working a weight of glory in us when we suffer. Let's go back to James 1. James 1, 2 to 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Verse 4. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And verse 12, it says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crowd of, crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. And if you go back into Romans chapter 5, Romans 5 says this, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. When we suffer, We know that we can fall at the feet of Jesus like Jairus and cling to him as our only hope and the Holy Spirit is present in us. Suffering benefits the church because in it we are unified. Look at this in 1 Corinthians 12, 26. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. In Galatians 6, 2 it says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. When we bear one another's burdens, we are taking their suffering upon ourselves. And suffering benefits the church because it strengthens her and encourages faithfulness. Tertullian argues that persecution strengthens the church. Here's what he said. He said, "The, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church." Colossians 1:24 to26. It says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. And that moves us to the next piece that suffering benefits the unbeliever. Because in it, our testimony is confirmed. 2 Thessalonians 1, 3-5 says, We ought always give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you, in the churches of God, for your steadfastness and faith, in your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring, this is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom for which you are suffering. Evidence—that's important, right? First uh, Peter three fourteen to sixteen. It says, "But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed." Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your heart's honor, Christ the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. And that hopefully will then point the unbeliever to the truth of God so that they will hopefully surrender to him lastly our suffering benefits God that's because it brings him glory when we endure that suffering by faith which reveals our faithfulness to him Philippians 129 for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him but also suffer for his sake first Peter 4 13 says uh, but rejoice in so far as you share in Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. I think about, I think about my baby girl Caroline a lot. She's not suffering. But I will suffer her loss daily until that day she and she and I get to have our first daddy-daughter date. Maybe she'll grab my cheeks and plant a little kiss on my lips like my other girls have done. Or bring a little little teacup and ask me to try it because she made it just for me. Maybe she'll crawl on my chest and quickly fall asleep. Or she'd tell me about her long walks and talks with Jesus. I don't know what it'll be like. But I know the suffering of Jairus. And I know that Jesus knows. And I know that he's present in every one of our sufferings. And I know that as I receive the blessed gift of communion, I am partaking of the sufferings of my Lord Jesus on my behalf. His body and his blood, because his compassion cost him something. His love for me resulted in costlier suffering than any of us could bear. And so as we prepare to receive this bread and cup, I want us to examine our hearts. Will we participate in our sufferings with joy, knowing that we are partaking with Christ as He is present with us? Listen, if you've not fallen before the feet of Jesus and surrendered to Him, that, that means that you haven't yet, to re, you haven't yet repented and, and placed your entire trust and faith in Jesus. We would ask that you just allow the, the bread and the cup to pass you by. Please don't partake if you are not a confessing believer God says, God warns us to to consider the bread and the cup and not to take it in an unworthy manner. But we do ask that you would consider Jesus. Consider his suffering. And we ask that you would consider repenting and believing. And if that's you, if that's something that God has placed in your heart this morning, I'd ask that you would please see one of us so that we can pray for you. Uh, you, can, you can see me here, Pastor Clint. Kevin's in the back there. Charlie's back there. Uh, Lance is over here. Josh is over here. There's a lot of us that would love to pray for you. Please see one of us. But for the rest of us, as the elements are passed out, please hold these in front of you. Uh, that you are, uh, know that you are looking upon the sufferings of our Lord Jesus, who's the only one who deserves not to suffer. And he did it for you. Our holy, perfect God. Our gracious God. Our compassionate God. We ask that you would help us to see your great power and authority in our lives. To be touched by you. And to respond by proclaiming your goodness. Lord, we bow humbly before you. God, may we always be aware of what you have delivered us from and to We thank you, Lord, that even when we were helpless in our suffering, you were working a weight of glory in us that we might have hope through knowing you. And we lift up any who are suffering now that they be touched by you. And that you would relieve them from their suffering in your perfect timing. We pray, Lord, for miraculous healing even and that, and that in doing so we would all learn more deeply of your great compassion. God, help us to resist sin and temptation. Deliver us from the evil one. And Fill our hearts with joy and great gratitude as we trust your authority in the lives of those around us and in our own lives. God, be present with us now as we prepare to receive communion that is before us. Thank you that Jesus has freely removed our debt of sin and called us to be his disciples. Thank you, Father, that by your grace, the blood of Jesus was poured out on that terrible and beautiful cross. Lord, we, humble you. we ask that you would humble us now as we prepare to receive this holy meal.